What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. This is the Evil Speak Podcast. With me, Stephen Rutledge. And me, Stuart Wright. Welcome to the fourth episode of Evil Speak. My name's fourth. Stuart. Fourth. Right. May, may, the, may the fourth be nearly <laughs> with us for the fourth episode of Evil Speak. My name's Stuart Wright. And the other Hello. voice in the background you can hear is... Stephen Rutledge. Welcome, Stephen. We've got a welcome. We've got a chocker show on today, <laughs> really and, and genuinely, as there's high production values, there's guests. So we're going <laughs> to we're going to do the usual two film format, but the second film we're doing is a much more exhaustive examination because we've actually got Eric Stoltz on the screenwriter, and he wrote Late Phases, which uh, premiered in the UK at uh, Frightfest last year and is now available on DVD, Blu-ray and um, all the VOD platforms and whatever else you call it. So we're, we're saying watch that movie. and Very if, much so. Thumbs up from us. A brilliant, brilliant werewolf movie. And like I said, the second, the, the, the majority of this podcast after we've talked about the next, the, the first film, which is Savage Land. Oh, something new. Savage Land. Now, the, the, the basic synopsis of this is... When a small town near the Arizona-Mexico border is wiped out overnight, suspicion falls on one lone Mexican survivor. But a roll of photos the survivor took that night tell a different story. And it's a wonderful, wonderful film. Now, before we go into our talk about it, I've got some exciting news. (gasps) Because... Drum roll. Just to give the film some context, I saw this movie first off back in October at the New Orleans Horror Film Festival. And there I met Simon Herbert, who is one of the three co-directors and three co-writers of this movie. He's a lovely lad from Yorkshire, and he's now based out in the very exotic Los Angeles. So it's with a very proud... Um, proud... I don't know, what, what can you be proud? What can be proud? Anyway, it's with great pride. That's what He's I meant one of say. our own... Oh, it's with great pride I can announce that um, at the Independent Filmmakers Showcase, which is a pretty big deal in that Los Angeles, on from May the twenty second to June the sixth, that's a hell of a hell of a thing. Savage Land has been awarded the best horror feature. So for you kiddies listening who haven't heard of it, going, what are you going on about? It ain't just us that like it. It's it's proper professionals. It's and with L.A. baby. L.A. baby, yeah. And, and they will be screening the film on the opening of the festival, which is 
a pretty kind of prestigious slot for any film to get, which is opening a festival. And then that not only is it the best horror feature, it's also nominated for best feature overall and the audience award. So I think, I think pretty much, Stephen, we've picked ourselves a doozy here, haven't we? We have, yeah. We've, we've lined that one up and we've knocked it out the park. So what was your feelings having watched the movie? What, what, what did you get from it? It's the film Blair Witch wishes it was. Um, that's the way I look at it. It's it's another found footage film, but it's not the kind of found footage film you you've seen before. There's a twist on it, and it's it's a very good film. It's one of them films I watched, and you could watch it straight again afterwards. Would you not uh, say though it's more of a mockumentary than it is a found footage? Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's like. Um, Definitely, I think it's it's. Um, if you didn't know if it was a horror film, you would just think you'd see this on, you know, the Discovery Channel, on the History Channel. It is just, it is the way it unfolds. It's just like you're watching a TV documentary. Mm. Um, there was that one, that film, a few years ago about um, a child who was found in a phone box. Um, in Spain or somewhere like that, and then the story unfolded that he wasn't actually the child, a mission child from America. I can't think of what it was called. But oh, the one who had no name or something, wasn't it? Yeah, it was kind of unraveled. And the story unfolds like that. You're following this story, and then it unravels, unravels, and then there's a point where what you think you're watching suddenly goes off on a tangent, and it's it's it is that it's that kind of film. It is it's a it is a documentary. But it's it's so much more. Well, no, I mean, and I think, I, 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 like I say, I was fortunate enough to meet Simon Herbert, one of the filmmakers who made this movie yeah. in New Orleans, and I spent the day with him, sort of getting ready for when his film was going to be shown. And so, despite talking about it and knowing full well it was a work of fiction, when the film finished, it was so convincing. I genuinely just had that little moment where I thought, "Wow, that was that was a." That was some documentary that, and then like as the as the actors' names fly up, you go, yeah. like, "Oh no, it wasn't. No, it wasn't." Exactly. It was, it I was mean, a I said to you, yeah, exactly. When I said to you, I said to you when I'd seen it, I thought the thing that spoils it for me is the fact that they have the actors' names going up at the end because you are so absorbed and you are absorbed into all this because you just think, "Oh, it's like a, a serial killer, or it's you know, a crazed man going around just killing people," and you get sucked into it and sucked into it, and then you, you are shocked. I mean. I watched it and was literally thought, my God, that is kind of creepy. I've never been creeped out watching a film for a long time, but it really certainly is a, a creepy kind of film to watch and I, I, in I a know, good way. And I know because I've, I've, I've interviewed Simon for the, uh, for the Britflix podcast that I do, and uh, I know obviously that the budget wasn't fantastic for this, and because of that, there are certain sort of tricks that they use that actually yeah. end up being really powerful. So this, yeah. this role of film that the survivor as salvage from the photographs you've taken, the pictures that you get, it's it's really just up to you, isn't it, as the audience to decipher what the friggin' hell is going on. Exactly what happened actually happened that night. And it, it that's I think that is one of the big plus points to the movie is the fact that you interpret it to how to however you want. It's not like you know, there's no shaky cam. We're saying it's a documentary. There's no shaky cam in this movie at all. There's none of that. All you get shown are, and they don't show you them all in one go. They're kind of drip-dropped, kind of drip-fed into, like, the story narrative as you're watching it. 
So you'll watch one, you think, oh, well, that, that could be anything. And then later on, they'll talk a bit more. And then there's another photograph there and you start seeing things a bit more. And thinking, oh, hang on, that doesn't look right. And it's just that kind of drip, drop, fed kind of the way you led into the story. And that's why you become, you do become part of the story. You are so absorbed in what's happening to this man. And there's a lot of backstory that's going on in the, in the background. And there's lots of people telling you their versions of the story. But all the time, they're just showing you the next piece of evidence along the trail. And it is just, it's amazing. It really is good storytelling. No, no, I mean, no. The three writers to write that. I mean, in your interview with them, and you say, you know, how do you get around doing that? You know, there must surely must be arguments between you about how you carry on with the story and things like that. I think it's, it's amazingly done. And, and I think one of, one of the other great thing that comes out of this movie, and we talk about similar things in, uh, we'll be talking about similar things in the Late Faces segment, is, is there's some clear themes that come out of this, because obviously he's a Mexican guy, the guy that survives. Yeah. And the suggestion is, I think, or even is, he's an illegal immigrant. So the film tackles really serious issues as well as like the, how the hell did he survive and who the hell is he? Did he kill everybody? The film, through through the voices that that give their opinion because it it's that classic kind of documentary thing of talking heads. So people go, yeah. well, of course there's this, this, and this, and of course there's a, and you know, there's no way on earth that this could have happened. So you 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 get you get the story of small small town racist America, but also yeah. you get the kind of liberal people with their agenda, and they're they're not they're not left you know, untouched with the satire stick, you know, they get hit with it as well. And all, overall, that then gives you this beautiful thing about the fear of the other, which is obviously the immigration thing. But then if you turn the fear of that other into something that's from a horror film, then you've got something to be scared of. And that's what I think makes Savage Land so powerful. Yeah. I mean, that that's it. It's, you're pulled in three different directions and all the time, there's the actual story, because you, you get, like, three talking heads saying, um, oh, it's this, he's, he's you know, it, he's an illegal immigrant, he, you know, he killed all these people, and then you get people, you get someone else saying, you know, this is, like, um, a, you know, a big Ku Klux Klan area, things like that, so it's, it's all to do with this, it's race-related, it's this, and then you get, like, the Border Patrol people themselves saying, well, you know, we do see some strange things around here, and then all the while, you're just seeing footage and like you just seen the main protagonist sat in the cell and he's not saying anything. And there's a bit where he says in the film, I don't want to spoil for people, but there's a bit where he says, well, why have you, why have you handed yourself in? And he goes, because I'm safe in here. And that, it's just, oh, it's just, I want people to go and see it. I really do want people to go out and see this. No, no, that's, I think that's the important thing. It's one of the reasons we've chosen to support this movie. It's not just because, I met Simon when I was away, but also the fact this film is 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 um, is looking for its distribution and sales to get it out there so that so that pe people can see it on DVD, Blu-ray, or the cinema or whatever. So hopefully this this film festival they've had. I mean they've had others. They've, they've done very well at other festivals previously. Um, so hopefully the film can grow and get a life. You know, as has happened to a lot of films. You know, the film festival circuit can can really help to expose a film to an audience. But I think it does so many things right that that many films, many horror films in the market today get wrong. Yeah. 
I mean, I think, I mean, not being in the film industry like yourself and things like that, I always just imagine films just always find a distributor. You know, there's, there's people queuing up to put films out and things like that. And it's in your, like, interview with him on, on the Brit Flix thing, it's quite surprising how how many kind of hoops you have to jump through before even people will let you in the door to kind of get your film shown and things like that. And I just, as I say, I just thought films, you know, you make your film, there's already somebody there who's going to distribute it for you. So the fact that they went out and made the film, I think it was over three years, wasn't it? Weekends over three years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to make this film. I just think, you know, you think, well, surely, how do you invest three years of your life and not have an end product? If you know what I mean, you're, you're making this film, but no one might ever see it. It might just sit on a shelf and nobody sees it. And you've just made it. You think, well, that was three years of wasted and things like that. So I find it, I find it strange how they're struggling to find a distributor for it because you're thinking, well, you know, I've, there's so many horror films that get made every year. And God help me, I've seen so many rubbish horror films already this year. And I think to myself, well, they're obviously not taking them to the right people. They need to go and take them to this people or that people because I'm sick of seeing rubbish. So when you actually see something that's very good, very good, you think to yourself, more people need to see this. This needs to be put out this needs to get shown however they can get it out whether it's on demand or in the cinema or just giving people copies of it in the street but i think what what, you, what you're seeing here maybe for the first time is that it's not about getting it to the right people if if only it was that simple it's yeah. it's, it's it's really about the right people answering their phone or looking at their email and following the link and watching it or even being at that even that that stroke of luck where somebody's and this is what festivals are all about in a way is somebody in the audience goes right i love that film it hasn't got any distribution deals done i'll speak to them or whatever it might be however it might be but certainly it, it, it it's all a hustle every every step of the way so i guess you've got that first step which is we need to make a feature length movie i mean that's that's a challenge in of itself right but i think what people have kind of come to this come to the agreement on now is that Making a movie, apart from obviously if you want to try and recreate the World Cup final in 66 or something really ridiculous like that, essentially with digital cameras, we can make movies now. You know, you can buy a Canon 7D camera and be yeah. up, up and running as a, as, a, as a producer and you can make a movie. But that doesn't mean that you can sell a movie into the marketplace because there's all them other people also making movies with their iPhones and with uh, yeah. and so what you've got Go right now is yeah. you've, what yeah. you've got now is is a really competitive market which which in theory should mean that the cream rises to the top like hopefully will happen for Savage Land, um, but 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 that competitive means that there's only still twenty four hours in a day, and if somebody's getting referred to a film here or there, then then they're going to go with oh I know them. I don't know that, yeah. you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's that that old ad, ad old adage. I mean, the idea that that that, that people would get, would would give pass up on qualities is 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 an isn't true, but if you can't get them to look at it, they'll never know its quality. Is the problem? Yeah. So we're we're, we're all fingers crossed that evil speak for uh, the Savage Land finds itself some uh, an audience. It, I mean, yes, exactly. I mean, I think it will find an audience quite quite. Easily, really. Um, oh, without a doubt, man. I think every, every horror festival would should want to show. Have you seen the film Cons The Conspiracy? No. It's very, very similar to that, and then, and it, and that film I watched um, 
I watched without without reading any bump about it. And I started watching, and that's about a couple of, and essentially this is the story of two documentary filmmakers following a kooky guy who espouses um, conspiracy theories. So he stands on the street corner, tells you the world is, end of the world is nigh, and um, and he's a bit mad, and he's got a, an apartment covered in newspaper clippings, and when they go around to visit him, they see all this, and it's like, woo, this guy's well off the char. Yeah. And then they go back one day, and he's vanished. And they've left, he's left all, everything behind. It's like he's either left in a rush, or somebody took him. And so their documentary about a weird bloke suddenly becomes a look yeah. into the world that he was obsessed with, and not surprisingly, they get obsessed. And I'll tell you no more. Oh, so, good, that sounds... Yeah. It's, on Net, it's on Netflix UK, that one. All right, I'll be looking at Netflix UK tonight, then. Good man, no. I can't, so... I can't, I need to watch a horror. I'm still on my horror 365, so what to watch a horror. Well, look, we've, we've, <laughs> we've kind of talked, we've talked a lot on Praise Savage Land. Do you want to, do you want to talk us through, what, what day are you on now, then, with your 365 horror? Um, I think I'm on 100 and, 117 was yesterday. I think I'm on 100, day 118 today. So today's viewing was going to be a film you keep going on about. Go on. And I've never seen. The Tall Man. Oh, God, get on that one. That's a cracker. Because um, you could say it's like Martyr's kind of, kind of a film. Well, it's written by the same guy. Oh, right. Um, Jessica Bale's in it, isn't she, I think? Yes. Um, so that, that's tonight's movie. Oh, man, because that's so missold. It was ridiculous. Yeah, because, I, I mean, I'm sorry, but at the moment, um, I'm, I'm only watching... I'm, I'm a fan of watching more and more horror movies on Netflix. Um, and I'm sure if people have looked on Netflix horror movie selection, it's not very great at times. Um, they always seem to have, like, parts two and three of something, but never the first one and, no, no, and no, things like that. So it's a bit of annoying when you try to do a whole series of films in one go. Um, and so it has got, like, terrible reviews on Netflix. It's got, like, one-star review and two-star reviews and things like well, that. Well, they're idiots. Thought, well, exactly. This did, is why did, I look did, at. Did, you like, did you like The Martyrs? Yes, Martyrs was very good, yeah. Well, it's I mean, got... It's, it's, like, it's not got... Who, the, I was going to say, who, who doesn't like Martyrs, but that's not... I mean, it's not the kind of film you can enjoy, but it's a good film. Well, I, you know I, can, I, mean? I, can, I can hand on heart say, despite her never having watched it, that my wife wouldn't like it. All right. I can hand on heart. <laughs> I, I, I know that for a fact. Um, but, what, no, it's... it's um, the, the cover art makes it look like a slasher movie. You know, the yeah. tall man... He nicks Behind. kids. Yeah, yeah. He yeah. nicks kids and all that shit. But actually, it is as much a satire on the bigger world like the Martyrs is. And I won't say any more than that because I don't want to spoil it for you. Brilliant. No, well, that's, I say I'll be looking forward to that tonight. So I will be watching that. Um, I almost, yeah, want, I almost want to be a fly on your wall. Because the, because the oh I'll let I'll let you know I'll let you know all of how what I found about it and how I, if I like it or not I mean that's, I, cause I that's, you, know, you, you know when you know when a film when a film starts and you're like right okay I, I know I know what this film's about I know what this film's yes. about and then it goes no it's not it's not about that yeah it, it's about <laughs> this and you're going oh my god it's about that and they go no it's not it's about this and you're like Jesus Christ. But, but well, that brings us back onto Savage Land again because that's what that's why certain movies are head and shoulders above other movies because you are constantly pulled in so many different directions and you have the rug pulled under your feet so many times. It's that that makes the movie 
that's what once you make you what makes you want to go to the movies it's the fact that you know you don't want to know what's happening or if you think you know what's happening then you put down a blind alley and then you spun 360 degrees and you're back where you started from you know you want to be constantly trying to second guess what's going to happen but being outfoxed through the movie so i quite like films where you you know you have to think about it and things like that you know th- there are times and places for disengaging your brain and watching you know a teenage slasher movie but most of the time i actually want to think about what i'm watching and think oh that's i wasn't expecting this i wasn't expecting that and i think the two films we've talked about today both give you something to think about in two different ways um and i think that's far more enjoyable than watching you know teenage girls getting slashed and killed i must admit my my, my patience for said teenage girls getting slashed or bad continuity or wobbly (laughs) sets is not is not really doing it for me anymore um i mean in your in your in in your hundred and odd days you've done then yes which which film that you i mean have you revisited a few looking at when you've been posting them on facebook i think you've revisited some films haven't you which yes. which films were like pulling? T- Give us a couple of films that were like pulling teeth. Um, as a ch- as a, as I say, as a child, as a, like a teenager, early twenties, I used to love the Friday the Thirteenth movies and the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. They are absolute dross, awful, <laughs> awful films. The, you could make one good movie, one good, say, 90-minute movie with all the Friday the 13th. If you could condense that into one movie, then that would be brilliant. Same with Friday the 13th, um, Nightmare on Elm Street. The first one is okay. After that, it's just, oh. And then they try and bring these ones, like I watched um, the last Friday the 13th one I watched. Not the Friday the 13th, the last Nightmare on Elm Street one was the one where it's Wes Craven's new nightmare. That, I'm sorry, but that is the biggest pile of shit I've had to sit through for a long time. It just makes no sense. It's just all over the place. And they get, all right, they get the, the original cast back in part, but it is just, you know. And then some of them are just so tongue-in-cheek. There's one where Johnny Depp makes a cameo, like on a video. Really? On an advert in it. Yeah, I think it's part four or or part five. You can see with one my surprise them, here, I've never, vet, but once part oh. two was a pile of dung, Part I mean, part two. I don't know what's on this. Part two is the gayest movie I've ever seen. No, no, and, and, like, and, it, and it's no, it's noted for that. It's noted know. for it, but it's it's. Um, I don't know, and then but there's films. You know, I I try and watch films I've not seen before because I could. You know, I could. I've got a shelf full of horror DVDs. If I really wanted to, I could just sit there all day and just watch one. A day and I wouldn't have to think about it but I actually want to seek out new films and things I haven't seen before so what's, so I, been, what's I, been your discovery then so far what, what have you discovered Ooh, I can't actually think I can't, ooh, you've put me on the spot now I can't actually think um, what what I actually quite enjoy at the moment it's it's you know oh, I'm trying to think what there is I've never seen um, I've never seen um, the Klaus Kinski Nosferatu one alright that was very good um, I quite enjoyed that, um, and it is—it's more the the foreign language films actually that hold my interest more. And I was thinking of art. Oh, it's, it's like nine o'clock at night. I don't really fancy looking at like subtitles and things like that. 
and then you, you kind of get you know atmospherics to them and things like that i actually quite enjoy but i'm actually you know i'm posting every day i'm watching a movie what film i'm actually watching and if people have suggestions they can always just say oh check out this one have you seen this one I can't remember. I should actually write a list of what I've actually seen now because I'm always worried about watching the same movie twice and stuff like that. But I kind of, I, I just go on Facebook and look at what I've actually put on Facebook so I can keep a track of what I'm doing. Well, then maybe do, do yourself um, a Facebook note and then it just becomes a growing list that you edit. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the other thing I quite like as well is watching movie, horror movies with other people. You know, people who, I wouldn't say... I mean, I watched um, Sightseers with my with my girlfriend, and she'd never seen it before, and she didn't know what it was about and things like that. And because it, it's, it, I wouldn't class it really as a horror film, but the just enjoyment they she got from actually watching it because it was funny and it was, you know, it's it brutally horrible in certain places. You know, it is quite brutal, but it she, just the enjoyment she got from it made me think, thinking, you know, I miss all this because you know, sometimes I'm sat in my room room on my own watching a horror movie, thinking. You know, horror movies, the good thing about horror movies, the more people you watch them with at the same time, the more enjoyable they are. Because people, everyone gets different things from it, whether people are scared and they're cowering and hiding behind a cushion or things like that, or whether people are laughing along with it because they think, oh, this is preposterous. That's why I think horror movies last so long, is because people, everyone has a different, it has a different effect on different people watching them how they take the movie, you know. I mean, to me, the scariest film ever, and it will always will be, no matter what, is Jaws. Jaws will always be the scariest movie I've ever seen because it, it, it's made me who I am. I still have a huge fear of swimming in the sea. Just don't do it. I might go up to my knees, but that's as far as it will go. No way! Can't do it. Every time I go on holiday, and you can ask people I've gone on holiday with, there's two things I will never do. I will never swim in the sea and I will never be the first person in a swimming pool because it scares me. Blimey, O'Reilly. Well, <laughs> talking of, of audience participation, of audience sharing a film with an audience, you reminded me that since we last spoke, I went to the Brussels International Fantasy Film Festival, oh. and I was lucky enough to go and see a film called From the Dark, which is from the writer-director... Um, I forgot his name now, that's bad, isn't it? Uh, Connor McMahon who did Stitches, among other films. Right, yeah. And I don't think I've ever had so much fun. And I've been to a lot of Fright Fests, but the Fright Fest audience is a bit conservative at times and doesn't like to join in with the films as much, yes. as, as, much as I saw when I was in Brussels. So, we're watching... The film starts up, and it's, you know, it's scary angles and lights and stuff. And... Um, and a few people are shouting at the screen. I was thinking, oh, hello, this is going to get a bit tedious. Because um, we're speaking in French and Flemish, I don't understand a bloody word. So, so you, can't, <laughs> you can't really join in if you don't know what they're saying. Um, but then it kind of, it kind of it slowed down. Once the, cause, I, mean, they'd been, I mean, to be fair, the film didn't show till 10 o'clock. And people were queuing in the foyer for this movie from about half past eight. It was like being at a football match, you know, like when you're waiting for the gates to open. You're like, yeah. kickoff's not on yet, so we have to wait in the foyer. Like, And it was like hundreds of people in the foyer, so the atmosphere was really cool. And I would definitely sit out. I, I wrote a review for this for uh, nerdly.co.uk, and I said that it felt like sing-along of sound of music coupled with the instincts of a football crowd. 
So, because it was clearly, I mean, the, the, the Brussels Festival's been going for like 20 odd years. So it's not like a, I'm discovering this for the first time, but yeah. these, these, this is like, this is like, you know, a, someone who's never been to a football match going, because how do they know what to sing? You know, it's like, it's because it's what they do. So the first bit that got me was, you know, you, the horror trope of someone with a torch in a dark room going, hello? Yes. Hello? Well, half the room, every time that happened, went, Yoo-hoo! It was <laughs> boss. It was absolutely boss. It was like it was just like how how has this not been done before? And then and then the other beautiful thing was every time they did like you know the stock shot of um, uh, which got like an establishing shot. You're going here. Here's where we are, and because it's night, it kept showing a full moon. So half yeah. the room would howl every time <laughs> a full moon come on screen. And then the piece de resistance, Stephen. The piece to talk about experiencing a film with an audience. So bear in mind, we've had this kind of backwards and forwards. People have been making noises and shouting things. And it's, and to be fair, it's all been quite like reverential. It hasn't been like, this is a shit film, we're going to spoil it. Yeah. It, it was very, it very much elevated the movie into something so much better <clears throat> by the very fact that they were talking about it and uh, by the very fact that they were joining in with it. And, but then there was this bit where, and it's a vampire movie, I should add as well. Um, and the, the the hero of the movie, she gets a finger bitten, and she looks around the room. She's in like an old barn, and she looks around the room because the the beast is sort of between a panel and a wood, so he can't quite get her. So she's like panicking, and she sees a chisel, and then the whole room starts yeah. a slow hand clap. <laughs> And, and it was almost like the director was in cahoots <laughs> with the audience because he dragged the frigging scene out. So, so the fact that you know what's going to happen, yes, she's obviously. It's the, if you think I'll chop my finger off now, eh? You're not going to do that. And, and true to that, the character didn't just chop a finger off. So the room's going, <laughs> and everyone's going hysterical because it's still not happened. And and then eventually she goes, she grabs it and just goes. Boom! Chops her finger off, and then the whole room cheers like a goal's been scored. <laughs> Seriously, Stephen, you've got to get on that. It'd be, it is... So, are you bringing this to Fright Fest this year? Oh, I'll not get away with it. I'll not get away with it. <laughs> Audience participation. It's it's it'd be it'd be lovely if it could happen, but I think it's 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 something that's been nurtured, and I wasn't, you know, I did join. <laughs> you, you found yourself doing YooHoo by the end of the film. <laughs> Because it was what you did. It was what everyone was doing, and, and and like I say, it didn't spoil it. Um, and I think I think let's be honest, there's enough duff films around. And I think if it, if if it was like a like a shitty latter day uh, Argento Jallo or something like that, yeah, it'd be perfect because you could get through it. Because if you try to take it seriously, you drive yourself mad. <laughs> Maybe that's just what the, the Belgian Flemish population do. Maybe they do that for all no, kinds of movies. No, no. Uh, talking to a Belgian friend, it is not known in Belgium for happening. So clearly, ah. it's a festival phenomenon. That's well. Well, based on my investigation of one other Belgian person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I can't offer any more Belgians than, than that. I'm afraid. <laughs> I don't know any. I'm afraid. Well, look, Me, it was a lovely, lovely country, but not very much to do. Well, look. We've uh, we've we've covered our first film and we've 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 looked at your little your little exploration into horror over 2015 and 
just you prompted through that you prompted me to remember Brussels. And uh, next next up on the podcast. Hello. I can't, I can't believe you cut off in the middle of uh, me, me doing the se- me doing the segue. Oh. And it wouldn't have mattered, to be honest with you. Had the machine that I'm using to tape it need to have a call? It only records while it's skyping. Right. So if it's not skyping, it pauses, which is convenient if you want to make sure you get just the scan. But obviously, yeah. I'm, I'm talking to the computer. So let me do that again. I'm going to do the segue. So we've covered Savage Land. We've looked at your embarking on watching 365 horror films. Oh, it's so difficult. I can imagine it is. I couldn't do it because I get... I know at Fright Fest every year, I'm kind of like... By the end of it, I'm kind of like, I need to watch just a kitchen sink drama. I need to just... Yeah. I need something... Because they're not... You know, and you, you, you'll have a lot of fun watching um, Tall Man. Yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes, sometimes, some days, like, if, if I've got time on my hands, like, on a weekend, if I'm not doing anything, I'll watch three or four, but I'll watch... I'll watch films that are the, the classed as horrors, but I don't class them as horrors, if you see what I mean. So things like Dale and Tucker versus Evil and things like that. I mean, they're classed as horrors, but... Well, the horror comedies, that. The horror comedies. Yeah, it's, that's... Uh, I mean, I'll watch that, but sometimes I don't put them down that I've seen them, thinking, well, that's just... It's, you know... I tell you what was good is, like, the M.R. James classic, like, BBC's Ghost Stories for Christmas... They were oh, quite good. Actually. I got, I got that. You think, I got, I got that for Christmas. Yeah, I got year. the box set for Christmas as well. Um, and and it, they they're very good because you forgot how good they were. And I, I think that's one of the traditions. I think TV has lost, especially in this country at Christmas time. Well, Stephen, let me cut off. It, let me cut you off at the pass. Let's save that for a future episode of Evil Speak because I I okay. I, I completely agree with you, and I think it's worth. Okay. I've had a chinwag about that. Yeah, yes. and, yeah I, and that's I, fine. I'll, I'll, and I'm looking at them in, in, in more detail. So yeah. we've 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 covered Savage Land. We've we've looked a bit at Stephen's uh, obsession with films for this year. Uh, <laughs> I've had I've had a quick chat there about my experiences of going to Brussels for the first time, <laughs> and now we've got Eric Stoltz talking to us about writing the movie. Late phases. Welcome, welcome to the show, Eric Stoltz. Well, thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. Now you've come on to talk about a film you've written called Late Phases. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, essentially, uh, as a lifelong fan of werewolves and werewolf movies, I just I was always looking for an excuse to write one, and then <laughs> uh, the universe provided me with an excuse to uh, write this one. So it's uh, essentially about. Uh, Older gentleman, a retiree who used to be in the Vietnam War, uh, he developed a lot of head trauma and eventually wound up going blind back in the States and uh, has become an increasingly, uh, shall we say, grouchy person as a result. Um, so he's pushed everyone away in his life. Uh, the only person left who is even in contact with him is his uh, son, who's very alienated. And as the film begins, is helping him and his uh, seeing-eye dog Shadow move into a gated retirement community. And on the first night moving into this community, um, our hero, uh, Ambrose is his name, and his seeing-eye dog get attacked uh, by some unknown, mysterious assailant that appears to be an animal, but uh, many signs point towards it being much worse and more supernatural and monstrous than that. 
And uh, so essentially Ambrose has until the next full moon to figure out exactly what's going on in this community, which of his neighbors is the monster that he suspects attacked him that first night. Quite, quite the beautiful ticking clock to have on a story. I think so, yes. And, you know, uh, a favorite of mine, I mean, obviously you can't talk about werewolf movies without talking about American Werewolf in London, which is kind of the, the modern high watermark for those movies. But, you know, as a kid growing up, my, my favorite was always Silver Bullet. I always <laughs> really loved I was a sucker for that movie growing yeah. up. And in part it was because there was a really fun device that they sort of derived from the werewolf monster, which is that inherent mystery, you know, that, that idea of uh, a whodunit, or in this case, yeah. a who is it, I guess. But, you know, that, that question of we know we're being attacked and we know that it has to be a human at some point, but we don't know who the human is. Human, yeah. And I always thought that was a really fun approach to that monster. It seemed very novel to me. I was going to say, because a lot of, I mean, I don't know if you've read any of like the English reviews for it, but a lot of the English press have been saying it's, it's kind of, they've kind of touched on two films, um, Gran Torino more for the, 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 the veteran <laughs> side of things. And, sure, the Howl, and the Howling was the other one that they, they all kind of tag it to. Whereas when I watched it, the first film I said, this is, this is so much like is Silver Bullet. And it's quite sure. interesting that you, and it is the whole who done it kind of thing. You're trying to work out who the vam, who, the, who not the vampire, who the werewolf is at the same time that the main character is trying to work out who it is as well. So it, it, it's very similar to Silver Bullet in that respect. And it's a great film to kind of be tagged to, I think. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you think so. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on it, Stephen. You hit the nail on the head. And, you know, I, I tried to allude to that uh, in a lot of ways with the script, like having a, a you know, sort of, odd eccentric priest character who's in the background and you know sort of turns the the our lead's head you know wondering exactly what this man's motives are or if he's you know exactly as benign as he claims to be so you know things like that i tried to work in just to show people you know look i'm i'm homaging it i'm not ripping it off entirely yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to bow in its direction and not well, just you know make off it. with all of its good ideas in the night <laughs> well, as soon as that's it, as soon as the priest was introduced, I thought, oh, it's obviously going to be the priest. Is because right. I'm thinking of Silver Bullet. Because <laughs> if, if people haven't seen Silver Bullet, I don't want to spoil it for you, but the priest did it. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, it's hard to spoil Silver Bullet. I feel like you're going to enjoy that movie no matter what the context is. It's just exactly. It's unabashedly fun. There's there's no there's no part of that movie where I'm bored. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. It's on rails from beginning to end. And it also has way. one. I mean, it's always one of the things I was I always think about werewolf movies. Is it also has one of the great te like movie werewolves in it as well? I think the creature effects in yeah. in Silver Bullet are very good as well. Oh, I think so as well. As well. Yeah. It's a very odd looking wolf, but it also, I think, is, is, it adds to how unsettling it is. You know, it's, it's yeah. a strange, it's got sort of a humanoid body and then this very massive noggin. You know, it's got this <laughs> yes. huge, weird head. And, and, you know, I've heard people sort of kvetch about that in the past, but I actually found it to be very effective and weird looking. Uh, yeah. In, in a well, I mean, the sim there's like similarities in like some of the scenes, well, because in, in Silver Bullet, he kind of crashes through a wall. In your film, he kind of crashes through a wall as well, things like that. So you can kind of see the touchstones of exactly. Silver Bullet in, in, like, your movie as well. Yeah, you can see the, the DNA of it. You can see how yes. big of an impression that movie made on me, you know, as a kid in the 80s, because uh, it, it's definitely a very clear evolutionary ladder between the two, I, I think.
Can can you can you tell us what the genesis of the story was? Because I think I think there's there's two unique elements that that wouldn't be obvious to to uh, to making a film, never mind a horror film. Um, sure. There's there's the blind lead, which mm. for a visual medium must have been a nightmare in terms of constructing a story for a blind person to feature in, and then um, the, the 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 horror genre is full of lots of teenagers and people in their twenties killing each other but there's not many with, with a, there's not many from the retirement home set so again those are two very different two very sort of unique aspects to explore so what what made sure. you go down that road with with a with your movie well i'm glad you asked um sort of the genesis of the idea just to roll it back a little bit um yeah. i you know had having always wanted to write a werewolf movie i always sort of had that in the back of my head of trying to find a, a good you know handle on it that would warrant you know, trying to write in that world in the first place. And, uh, you know, when my grandparents were getting old and infirmed and, you know, that inevitable moment came where, you know, the house had to be sold, things had to be moved, all the discussions of, you know, are they okay for retirement community? Do they need to be in an assisted living facility more so? Um, you know, those those conversations uh, I found to be very intense and, and very disruptive. Um, and it's something that everybody has to go through on some level, but... It, to me, it, it became this sort of awful dichotomy of, you know, this is family, but also people are talking about them in a very um, reductive manner. You know what I mean? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there was a very um, strange parallel in my life uh, where a friend of mine, her, her uh, dog, who she rescued from a pound, was getting quite old as well. And um, the the conversations that she was having were almost note for note the conversations that my own family was having about the grandparents, <laughs> just the idea of what's to be done, you know. And I thought, God, this is a surreal parallel, right? I mean, who would have thought that people would talk the exact same way about a, a dog getting on in years as, you know, a grown man or a grown woman getting on in years? And, you know, I, I couldn't get that parallel out of my head, that idea of the old dog and the old man. And it, it struck me as a really interesting excuse to try to play around with something I hadn't seen before, which is the idea of an old werewolf, you know, somebody who sort of grew and aged with this curse. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it just called to mind lots of fun visual sort of cues, like, a, you know, a wolf just covered with gray and silver hair and maybe missing it in patches across the body and things like that. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm glad, Stuart, that you brought up the idea of, of making a horror movie full of, you know, senior citizens and, and the elderly, because that was something that excited me, too. You know, I, I tend to get excited um, when it comes to embarking on a script by things that I, I don't see very often. Mm. Um, and, you know, it certainly proves to be a curse in its own way, because once it comes time to take it to market, people are often going, oh, it's too bad I can't think of any recent examples of this, uh, you know, often of the wastebasket goes um but in in this case it was very exciting because you know um horror movies and and monster movies used to be filled with adults you know you look at the universal monster movies and you'd be hard-pressed to find any kid or teenager in those films oh indeed, indeed. Um, and then you know of course in the 50s with drive-in movies um you know suddenly they were marketing like monster movies directly to teenagers yeah. but even then it was still movies that were just filled with you know adult characters and it wasn't really until the the boom of stuff like um you know Friday the 13th and Halloween and these sort of teenagers in peril movies in the late 70s that 
that became the, the new normal. You know, it was the status quo for a horror movie to have an almost exclusively young cast with just a couple of veteran character actors thrown in to, you know, uh, actually given performances and <laughs> raise the yeah. stakes a little bit. Uh, so I got really excited by the idea of writing a horror movie where the youngest person in the film is in his 30s because it just struck me as something that I grew up watching and haven't seen very much of. And, um, you know, to Dark Sky Films' credit, that which I thought was going to be the hardest selling point was what, you know, excited Dark Sky about it. They read it and they thought, wow, my God, a horror movie with no teenagers in it. <laughs> when's, when's the last time you've really seen that, you know? And uh, I was very, very impressed that they took me up on my bluff and they wound up, uh, <laughs> you know, moving forward with the film. But I think that's that's the... Um... The, the the interesting thing that comes out of it is that because because you've got older characters, then older characters by definition have had a life, so therefore yes. they understand that there's a drama going on between them. Like obviously there is a drama going on between the father and son for starters. Sure, yeah, Ambrose and Will have you know an entire life's worth of of drama and pain and and alienation between them, mm. and it's it's a really good place to start, you know, and it's really the same dynamic that you'd see in you know any given slasher movie between um the the son or the lead in that film and their father it's just we're focusing on you know the the about a 20 year difference between that and you know the the problems that Nancy has with her sheriff father in Nightmare on Elm Street or something like that yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. and um to to talk a little bit more about the idea of having him be blind Stuart which yeah. I know you asked earlier as well um you know it, it was I, I don't have any experience with, with blindness in my family. I mean, certainly my, my grandparents, their eyesight was certainly an issue later on. But, you know, to me, it just seemed like um, a good way to to give the lead some sort of genre exaggeration in a sort of unusual and respectful way while also giving him uh, a sort of heightened sense ability um because you know if a werewolf is going to have heightened senses in the way that any animal would the hearing and the sense of smell it seemed like a fun way to sort of match that in our heroes so that the hero and the monster have you know sort of mirror aspects to each other which i always try to do you know with a protagonist and an antagonist i always think it's great fun to have similarities there was it was he was he always blind in in every draft or was that something that was developed in, in the writing. He was always blind. He was always from, from day one, from the treatment, he was always blind because, you know, the, I, I grew up in the Midwest in the States, you know, I, I grew up in a Southern area of Illinois and every single man, mm. they, no matter what their issue, whether they were quite old, whether they were sick or blind you know, I knew lots of people at the church that I went to growing up who, you know, were very infirmed. There were, you know, people who could barely walk, but they would be damned if they'd let anybody help them. And I always found that to be so fascinating. <laughs> yeah. You know, there'd yeah. be there'd be people just breaking their ankles, running to get to these people on crutches, going, oh, let us help you up the stairs. And, and I remember so vividly as a boy watching this, like, 90-year-old man on crutches actually, like, grab someone by the collar and say, stop it, and just, like, practically push this man away to just get up these stairs. 
And uh, I, I really loved the idea of taking someone who, you know, society would say is very helpless and just really insisting upon giving that person that dignity in the last few days of, of life to, to say, no, this is mine. This is my life, and I'm going to, uh, you know, persist through it without the help that people assume I need. Mm. I mean, going on to Ambrose himself, I mean, you're saying, like, he was blind, but, I mean, he was also hard of hearing as well, because in one scene he, he takes his hearing aid out and puts it in so he can hear where the, the, like, where the attack might come from and things like True, that. True, absolutely. So, I mean, was that part of early drafts as well, or was that just something you thought, well, because, I mean, you, you are taking away all his senses, if you see what I mean, you know, you know oh, yes. his eyesight's gone and things like that. Are you, are you, when you're doing your first drafts, are you thinking, well, well, we'll try and take away as much from him as possible? Because as you think of like a wild animal, well, their eyesight's better than human eyesight, their hearing's better than human hair and things like that. So the, the less we, the, the more we take away from our, um, our lead kind of thing, it then yeah. shows us that, you know, he's relying on other skills and things like that. I mean... Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, stacking the deck is is part of the fun of writing anything, I think. Just, you know, finding finding what's sort of horrible for our main character and then making it even worse. Um, I'm glad you pointed out the, the hearing aid. You know, that actually was an idea that um, the director, uh, Adrian, brought to the table. Um, one of many awesome contributions that he had when he came on as director, because... You know, I was initially working under the premise that, you know, oh, he's he's got heightened senses. He's got, you know, a, a better hearing than most, even at an, at an old age. And uh, Adrian's notion was, well, let's really sell that by having this, you know, the, the typical sort of hero gearing up for war montage. Let's <laughs> sort of, you know, have a, a tongue-in-cheek moment where, you know, after he's loading up his sniper rifle and, you know, putting on his... His, his, you know, uh, uniform from the army and things like that. Let's have him crack open um, a virtually unused hearing aid and put that yeah. in. And it's <laughs> sort of a, you know, the sort of thing that you might find in an Edgar Wright movie. But, you know, he was able to treat it in a way that was, um, you know, tonally very suitable and, you know, didn't necessarily, you know, make, make a, a joke out of the sequence, which Adrian and I talked a lot about, you know, how do we make sure that this is, you know, something that is, is still very serious and still very grounded, even though obviously the exaggerations at work are, are very wild and, and very sort of, you know, um, off the deep end in some cases. What was the, uh, what was, what was the involvement of, of, of the director in the storytelling when you moved from script to screen and how did, how, what was your, and what was your involvement therein as well? Well, it was easily the best experience I've ever had with a script. I mean, Adrian, um, beyond being just a, a consummate gentleman and one of the nicest guys in movies, is also really, really passionate and, and really comes to something with a vision in his head from beginning to end. And, you know, though he usually writes his own material, uh, he got very, very excited by the script for late phases and, and very passionately lobbied to direct it because, you know, he saw it very plainly from beginning to end. And it's, it's really to his credit that he worked so hard to keep me involved throughout pre-production and production because, you know, as, as you guys have heard a million horror stories, I'm sure that's not always the case. Of course. And it's not. Yeah, yeah. And and I I felt very close to late phases and and you know I knew that I was giving up uh, a little bit of some autonomy with the project when I sold it but you know it was Adrian's priority to keep me as as close to the story as possible while they would go in and do all the necessary revisions 
And, um, you know, really every note that Adrian had was just to support and underline what was already there. He didn't want to, you know, really add or remove any characters. You know, anything that was removed was for strictly, you know, boring production-based and, and budget-based reasons, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, let's take out the, the school bus and replace it with a smaller shuttle vehicle, you know, things like that. Yeah. Um, and, and I had the pleasure of visiting sets for a week and, you know, he, he kept me very close by in case there was any, you know, dialogue that needed a, a, a sort of alternate read or a, a sort of different direction to go and things like that. I mean, it was really his priority to keep me very close to it. I think as someone who writes his own scripts, he knew that, uh, there's a lot to be gained from keeping that author close to the vest in this case. So, you know, and, and again, I, I could not begin to say enough great things about that process and about him as a director. I was uh, very impressed and honestly very touched that he made it such a priority. I mean, how much input do you ha- have, I mean, in, in like, while, while you're on set? I mean, do you say, well, I didn't really picture it like that? I mean, can you, can you step in and say, well, I didn't really see that scene when I was writing it set like this? And, or, or do you just kind of say, no, I've, I've passing the book now, you know, I've done my bit, I've written the story, you take over and let's see what you can do with the story, or, or do you like to be a bit more hands-on and say, well, I didn't really see it like that, I'd rather you try it like this, or do you stay off it? That's a good question, you know, I, I generally prefer just to, you know, as you said, sort of pass the buck, you know, I, I do as much as I can to set the story up to succeed, and then I just sort of float it off to, to the collaborators, <laughs> and I, in this case, you know, I, I certainly didn't have any reason to look at anything on set and, and the opposite. Everything sort of exceeded my expectations. And, and I was so impressed by the stuff I was seeing from the actors. I was so impressed by, you know, the, the visual effects team that, you know, honestly, all, all I was really doing on set was getting in the way <laughs> because <laughs> all, all I wanted to do was just, you know, hang out with the, the creature core, uh, Robert Kurtzman's effects team and just, you know, geek out with them about all the different transformation stuff they were trying on. And yeah. eventually they had to say, you know, okay, well, we have to get to work. <laughs> and they go, okay, I'll, I'll go hang out by the craft table in that case. But, um, yeah, I mean, you know, generally, much, oh, go ahead. I was just say, I mean, how much input do you have, like, on, like, creature design? I mean, being, uh, like, like you, I'm quite a big werewolf fan myself. And so you always have kind of ideas in your head, well, I'd want my werewolf to do this, so I want it to do that. I mean, how much input, when you were writing the script, did you kind of describe what the, the werewolves look like? Or, do, or did you just say transformation and then leave, like, a blank page and think, well, that's somebody else's problem if it goes into a movie? Or did you kind of describe how the transformation would happen and things like that? Oh, dude, I was exhaustive in my description. <laughs> I, 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 w- I was such a nerd about it. I, I went to such great lengths to be as visual and descriptive as possible, you know, describing old skin tearing away like a corn husk. I mean, as as sort of descriptive as I possibly could have been because, you know, as a werewolf fan, I, I just can't help but just picture that key transformation sequence and just be as descriptive as possible um so you know again that was my input was just trying to describe the monsters as effectively as possible and trying to um you know describe those visual effects sequences that transformation as descriptively as possible and in fact um you know part of why adrian uh wanted the 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 role of director on this so badly was because he read the transformation sequence and it 
it, it just really sort of lit a fuse in him. You know, he was so yeah. excited by that. Um, cause when I wrote the transformation sequence and I did not picture this in my head at all, but I, I wrote it, um, elliptically with a lot of ellipses, just, you know, this happens and then this happens. And Adrian, uh, reading that as all of these ellipses are just leading from one thing to another, that sort of smooth, fluid transition from moment to moment in the transition, Adrian said, well, that makes me think our contribution to werewolf transformation canon could be, let's try to do this all in, in seemingly one long take. Yeah. Let's, let's, I mean, let's hand back and forth and make it seem like it's all really happening in real time. Well, it is quite an, a unique kind of transformation scene. It's not one like you, you've kind of seen before, the way it happens. Yeah, and I, I loved it. I mean, I never in a million years would have guessed that somebody would have brought that to the table. And Adrian, that was like the first thing Adrian said was, oh, I want to try to get it across as though it's one long take. And I was yeah. like, oh. Dude, if you can do that, more power <laughs> to you. Well, that's it. I mean, I you know, I mean, there's so many films now that rely on CGI effects and things like that, and it's never it's never the same as like the practical effect of having it there in camera while it's happening, and so it just looks more realistic as well. I agree. Yeah, it was a priority for 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 me, for Adrian, for uh, Zach, the producer, uh, who's a friend of mine. You know, we're all in the in the same boat when it comes to practical effects that we just we wish there were more of them. Yeah. And, um, you know, come hell or high water, we really wanted to make that the priority. And, you know, there there it was interesting to sort of watch Creature Core do their thing because, you know, budget means that you can only do so much. And, you know, the one thing that I put in the first draft that I will admit to missing is that, you know, there's an old man who's uh, bald. In the uh, film, uh, he's always been bald, and I always loved the idea of him transforming into a bald werewolf. Bald werewolf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a completely uh, a hairless, just wrinkled pink, you know, something like a weird humanoid naked mole rat. Yeah. And I, I, I always had that image in my head, and, and, you know, regrettably, that would have taken just tons more. That would have required, like, its own branch of developing creature effects for it. Um, so, sadly... <laughs> Richard the Bold Werewolf had to go. <laughs> can, I, can I ask? Can I ask about the uh, about the werewolf rules and, and the universe? Because I think that's that's it's interesting to go into something where, like the vampire, like Frankenstein, where there's already so much known. And I, yeah. did, I don't think I particularly spotted any. But did did you break any of the rules for, to invent your own, as it were, or did you did you stick to all the kind of basic known rules that you were you, you were already aware of? I try to stick to those rules, you know, I, I think that's part of the fun of a monster is the, the rules that come with it, you know, it's why I think one of the last great modern movie monsters is the Gremlin, is the Mogwai, because, you know, that has such a fun manual that comes with it, you know, yes. all these things that you can and can't do. <laughs> and, you know, when you see a movie like, um, I mean, not that I'm admitting to seeing Twilight, but when you see something like Twilight that goes, oh, well, let's change the fact that a werewolf has to transform by the light of the full moon. Let's have them just do it yeah. voluntarily, you know, in broad daylight. I, I don't find that to be fun. You know, I, I like the fact that there's boundaries to it and, and that there's restrictions and parameters to it. Um, in this case, you know, I tried to sort of go by American werewolf rules. Um, you know, one thing that a lot of people ask me is, you know, um, well, why why isn't there the sense of immortality that comes with being a werewolf. Why is it that like the werewolves are aging and like the wolf versions of them age along with the people? 
And, you know, I think the thing that American Werewolf taught me is that it, it's really about the wolf reflecting the man. And, and it's, it's really much more about just brutal mortality than about immortality. You know, yes, it's a curse, but it's a, a lifetime curse rather than anything that, you know, would preserve you in the moment that you were bitten. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily want to spoil anything um, in case people haven't seen it because it's, it's fairly recent. But, um, you know, there are moments where people are, um, you know, attacked or bitten by werewolves in late phases and um, they don't die right away. And, you know, that's something that I took from. But, but then, of course, the question is, well, would they instantly transform upon being bitten and attacked if they don't immediately die? And, you know, from what I could gather in American Werewolf, you know, because David is attacked on the moors and, you know, he barely survives. And then it's the next full moon that he, he yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah well, so that, that was sort of my my assumption of the mythology. And I've, I've had a few discussions with people about that. But I think that it's sort of a check in the mail sort of curse, you know, where you're attacked and then, you know, sort of lapses over into the next full moon. But I actually thought that was quite a, that that scene where you're talking about where where like the werewolf creates his army because it's not done how it would normally exactly. be done in another movie. You know, you're not you're not expecting what happened to happen. If you see what I mean, you're kind of completely off, you're taken off. You know, you, you you're not expecting that kind of thing, and it is taken by surprise when it actually does happen. How he creates his army of other werewolves. I thought that was a brilliant touch, actually. You know, well, you don't see that kind I, of I thing in the film. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's with a movie like that, you know, when it's very intimate and you're sort of following one character's point of view for the whole thing, it's, I think it's very important to, you know, pay it off. I mean, it's, it's a slow burn film in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's some people prefer that. Some people are annoyed by it. But in this case, because it's a character piece for easily the first hour of it and there's so little, you know, sort of traditional horror um, moments or, or traditional horror attacks or gore or anything like that. We really wanted to make sure that the third act was all about payoffs and all about just delivering that sort of, you know, monster movie iconography as much as possible. Yeah, I mean, it, there's, I mean, there's like lots of like nice little touches where like one of the 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 humans has an eye patch, and then when he t- when he's a werewolf later on, he's only got one eye. And exactly. Like and yeah. I mean, it's it's quite good. It's and I love the scene where the security guard on the gate he's been like a, a pain in the arse all the way through it, and then at the end when the werewolves are coming in, he kind of he sees them on the monitor and like leaves town. He's like, oh, fuck this. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> he's not waiting around. <laughs> Yeah, totally. And I mean, that's just a part of how they're all in it. You know, they're they're on their own. You know, nobody's going to come and help these people. It it depends on, you know, Ambrose to kind of, you know, assume the mission of destroying these monsters because they've been sort of left in this community to to be forgotten and to, you know, just sort of die off. Um, Yes, sir. Eric, one of the one of the things. One of the things we did, were discussing while we did while we did our massive amount of preparation beforehand was, uh, and, and, and I think it was brought up with, with Steve mentioning the uh, the Gran Torino um, comparisons with the movie is that I think one of the one of the great things you've achieved is is the characterization in the movie because then that allows you to explore the, the, some real themes like you've already said the notion of parking your parents or grandparents at these places. And then driving yes. away, you know, unless you say, right, that's that problem solved. Um, 
you know, let's let's get on with our lives because that's where they get that's their next phase in life. Obviously, late phases being your title and everything, and obviously plays nicely with the werewolf. But but Stephen, you, you you had an interesting idea as well, didn't you? Which tied into the veteran bit? Yeah. Um, well, it's kind of like I mean, it happens in this country as well. Whereas you know, servicemen and that suddenly get. You know, for all their lives, they've been institutionalized in military service, going from place to place, doing one job, being trained for one job. And then once they're out, they're kind of just left to it. In their case, they're thrown to the wolves. Yes. And that was like my kind of take to it. So he's kind of just being left. And in this case, literally, he is being thrown to the wolves. Yes. I mean, you you really hit the nail on the head. I mean, in, in the case of trying to build a character for Ambrose, I mean, it was sort of a... Uh... Uh, a double damnation for him, the fact that he's not only, you know, too old to be viewed as a functioning member of society, he's also an old veteran. And, you know, we 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 are, in my opinion, not to get political, of course, but I, I, I think we're extremely disrespectful to veterans on this yeah. side of the pond when they come back from service. I I think that it's a reminder of things we don't like to think about, you know, the war, the conflict, the violence, and and when a soldier comes back from duty, many, many times they are sort of ostracized or, or you know, put into a margin of society that, you know, I, I always found to be hugely disappointing. I mean, you know, my, my grandparents fought in World War II. I've had many, many servicemen and women in my country and in my community. And, you know, it, it's sort of my way of, of trying to embody, you know, some, some dignity for somebody who was sort of used and abused by the system of, of the military. And then, you know, as, as you put it, Stephen, the thrown to the wolves, just basically left to die. Just, well, thanks for what have you done for me recently? Yeah. Sort of attitude towards people, you know? Um, and, and so that was, that was definitely something that I, I wanted to work in, you know, and of course a world war two veteran at this point would be well into, you know, his nineties. And so in this case it was, I I wanted him to be, uh, to be a Vietnam veteran, which of course is its own stigma and has its own just, you know, completely wholly separate, um, you know, sort of cloud of, of negativity surrounding it for all the obvious reasons. I think, I think as well, Eric, what you, what you've, what you've done with, with making Ambrose such on the surface, such a cantankerous person and, you know, brutally stubborn about getting his, about, about how he wants to live his life. Is yes. that that none of that makes us lose any empathy f- towards him at all? He, in fact, it grows the more the more he's having to react and sort of lash out with his tongue, not with his fists. You kind of you feel for him even more. You don't think you don't think he's being bad at all, and that's a really nice aspect of a rather than just being a nice old guy and suddenly evil visits him. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's kind of <laughs> right. <laughs> he, he's, he's the kind of fella that you just think you, you might think, oh, don't talk to Ambrose; he'll just bite your head off. Excuse the totally. excuse the pun. <laughs> <laughs> I welcome puns always. Um, I mean, I'm glad to hear you say it, Stuart. Um, I, I think not to be you know too modest about it, but you, I, I really can't overstate how much of that is Nick DiBiggi, the actor. I mean, that guy is the real deal. He's he's a consummate professional. He's he's charming to a uh, jaw dropping degree. Uh, he he walked into this role and just gave it such a a charisma, you know. And a big part of it, yes, is that you you can't help but sympathize with the protagonist who has so much stacked against him, you know, not just um, his own sort of physical failings, but the um, you know the the negative opinions of the world around him. 
it's hard not to throw your lot in with with a protagonist like that. But then you look at Nick Dimitri and you're just like, God, I, I just want to be friends with this asshole. Yeah. You know, like I, this, I just I just want to have a pop a beer with this guy and just hear his stories, you know. Um, and and he's he's got an old Hollywood feel to him. You know, there are a lot of, you know, old personality types from movies that are very rugged, very stubborn, very harsh. But nevertheless, you root for him because you just see so much charisma in him. You know, he brought a lot of, I think, Charles Bronson to the table. Uh, he brought a little bit of some uh, Steve McQueen. And, you know, to go off of the Grand Torino comparisons, I, I think he definitely brought some, you know, grouchy, like, crime-era <laughs> Clint Eastwood in there. Yeah. Maybe maybe not quite so, like, uh, current events Clint Eastwood, but definitely that sweet spot of, you know, like, the unforgiven, the aging gunslinger who sees one last opportunity to make right. Yeah, but you can you can also imagine him being a character in a Dashiell Hammett novel as well. You know, he's that real kind of hard boiled man. You know. Oh, very much so. Yeah, and I mean that's part of the fun of the ticking clock of the full moon is that I got to you know work on my detective story chops a little bit. <laughs> and uh, you know, it's it's fun to have that hard boiled character who gets you know. I I think we part of why we love those. Excuse me. Part of why we love those characters, whether it's in horror or or in noir, is that they get to say the things that we wish we could. You know, yes, somebody's yeah. an asshole to us on the bus, and and you know, for the rest of the day, we're just going, oh, I should have said this. <laughs> the perfect comeback. And we love these characters who don't have that filter and get to just go, you know what? Fuck you, Jack. And we just go, oh yes, I wish I had you following me around all the day. So I think that just happens. Guardian angel. <laughs> That happens with age. Don't you just kind of don't give a fuck at the end of it and you think, I'll just say what I want now. <laughs> I see that all the I time. Think so. <laughs> yeah, I think so, man. Absolutely. Certainly that's that's rampant in my family. Just the older <laughs> you get, the more it's like, well, what do I care if I hurt somebody's feelings, right? Exactly. <laughs> now, I'm, I'm conscious of time, Eric. So I just wondered, is, is there anything that you're working on at the moment you can tell us about at all? Or is uh, are things... Oh. Certainly lots of things I'm working on. I mean, as, as you guys know, it's, it's a glacier pace with pre-production stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I, I would hate to talk too much about things I'm working on right now, just knowing that I have a capacity for jinxing things. Um, <laughs> I totally but, you know, my, sure. My priority is, you know, I, I've done the werewolf film. I, I, as a nerd for horror movies, I really want to have, you know, my take on all of the classic monsters. So, you know, I'm working on a haunted uh, house script right now that I'm pushing forward with a couple of people. Um, you know, I, I think that it's it's a good time to be making a ghost movie because they're just successful enough at the box office that people will actually take you up on some sort of out-of-field ideas and some sort of strange takes on it because they'll say, well, as long as we say it's a ghost movie, people, you know, put their butts in the seats, yeah. you know. yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm trying to push that forward because I, I think that has the, that's the horse in the race that has the best chance at success right now. So, uh, fingers crossed, my friends. Hopefully, uh, sooner rather than later. Well, good luck with that. Well, I mean, I guess we could say to, I mean, Late Phases is out on DVD and Blu-ray and, and on various VOD platforms, isn't it? That's kind of basically. Yes. Yeah. Oh, very much so. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, as far as I know, it is, uh, prowling around in the UK right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think all the standard uh, VOD platforms, um, and yeah, I, I think it's coming to Netflix at some point as well. Don't hold me to a date because I'm not really clear on it, but uh, you know, it's it's going to be streaming at some point as well, as far as I know. 
And it's got, it's in, in Britain, it's got a, I think it's in Britain, I don't know. Change of name. A change of type. <clears throat> Are you aware of that? We've got oh, yes. Um, that actually is reflected in the States as well. Um, Late Phases, colon, Night of the Lone Wolf. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Now, isn't this interesting? Uh, now, I'm <laughs> hopefully I don't get in hot water for sharing this with you guys. Um, there was some concern with certain... Um, shall we say, retail uh, providers about the title of late phases because there was some concerns that it might be construed as, uh, shall we say, an after-hours title. Um, well, really, well, it with, sounded you know, like a porn, like a porn film. <laughs> <laughs> the, the concern was because the word late was in the title that there would be wow. some, some construed uh, content issues there. So uh, they, they auditioned a few of them, and they they ultimately got approval on the, the subtitle uh, Night of the Lone Wolf because it's, you know, again, trying to play with that idea of Ambrose being sort of the lone warrior who's out to, you know, take matters into his own hands. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that, that's reflected here as well. Um, you know, well, I, this... I am just happy that... Oh, go ahead, Stuart. No, I was going to say, because there's, a, there's um, a film that also play, opened at Fright Fest last year called The Harvest, the John McNaughton movie, written by uh, Stephen mm. Salotti. You know, I had Stephen on the podcast round about the time of Fright Fest. And, um, oh, cool. and that's now in Britain. I mean, have you, have you seen the film The Harvest? I'm um, a fan. Yeah, I, I was quite impressed by it. No, it's a brilliant film. In Britain, it's been released as... Yeah. Children can't play out, or child can't play out, which seems like a bit on the nose to me. And uh, you know, far be it I would from agree me. with that. Yeah, because the harvest is pretty thematic, as much as it is an interesting title, you know. But you know, marketing, who knows? Well, I, I, I would say, you know, my if I have any concerns, I'm, I'm ultimately just very grateful that the film is in front of audiences. You know, when I first heard the title "Night of the Lone Wolf," I, I had a similar concern of, oh, it seems a little bit. You know, hitting hitting it right on the nose, but um, yeah. you know, ultimately, what matters to me is that people get to see it. I mean, no, true, at, true. at that point, it couldn't be more out of my hands. So I I can only sort of throw my hands up and say, well, as long as it's in front of eyes and it's you know reaching the right audience, that's all I can really ask for. I, I always mean, think if the I was gonna say I I always think if you make a porn par- parody of your movie, you. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so we have to think of one a new title for yours to come up. As a porn movie, yeah, uh, <laughs> I'll I'll leave that to the experts. You know, there's, there, there's veterans in the porn industry that are way better at uh, uh, punny porn titles than I am, so I'll, I'll I'll leave that to their wheelhouse. I think. <laughs> well, well, look, we'll look at Eric. Thank you very much for your time uh, coming on the podcast to talk about the movie about late phases. Oh, thank you. This was a real pleasure. I'm I'm really, really grateful for the in-depth conversation about it. It's nice to talk to fellow horror fans about this stuff. Yeah, great. Thank you. This is the Evil Speak Podcast. With me, Stephen Rutledge. And me, Stuart Wright.
This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. 